From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy on the campus of Penn State University, I'm Michael Berkman. And I'm Chris Beam, and this is Democracy Works. Chris, today we have a special guest with us today. Peter Enns, an associate professor of political science at Cornell University, is uh, visiting the Penn State campus, and he has a recent book out called Incarceration Nation, How the United States Became the World's Most Punitive Democracy. So this is yet another uh, a book that uh, demonstrates the uh, the useful the utility of um, political science and, because it's, well, thank it's, you. it's a very um, valuable. I'm glad, I'm glad we're impressing you. <laughs> Every once in a while. It's not that easy, nor is it always the case that I'm impressed. But in any case, this is a good book and, uh, it, and it does um, a really good job of marshalling a lot of public opinion research, especially. And we thought it was a good idea to bring the, this book in uh, because it reflects on many of the same issues that we saw with Frank Baumgartner's book about uh, policing. Um, and in in particular, well, first of all, obviously and in, inescapably, there is the issue of, of race and, and inequity with respect to treatment and and, uh, uh, and and effects. But also just in terms of how the experience of, uh, you know, poor people, uh, people of color, et cetera, how their experience with law enforcement, both from or through this spectrum of police, arrest, prosecution, and then incarceration impacts their understanding of their own status as a citizen. Right. Along with along with Frank's book, we're getting uh, really a, a nuanced and, uh, and, and, and frankly, quantitatively authoritative look at how Americans interact with the state. And of course, there, there's variation across states on this mm-hmm. uh, because Criminal justice is is largely a state responsibility in the United States, and uh, but but overall, we incarcerate more people than anybody else, certainly than any other democracy, and 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 in many cases, double, right, double, the, you know, just per capita, and and there are implications to that. Uh, there there are implications, I think, for the rest of us mm-hmm. who, who are not incarcerated, but there are, but most importantly, there are implications for people. Who uh, who spend time in jail and then and then have to come back out and integrate into society right. and become full democratic citizens, or, or at least attempt, or at right? least attempt. That, to. That's kind of the point that it's it becomes extremely difficult, and so it's really interesting to think about what is it that accounts for this. But what really um, what I took away from Peter's book and what really kind of shocked me was that you know before the 1970s. Um, you know, the United States really wasn't much of an outlier. We didn't have that many more people in prison. I mean, some more. But so it, the idea of how is this, you know, what accounts for this change and and what are what's driving it, it I think is really interesting. Right. And so Peter, Peter was making the argument in this book, and he'll he'll talk about it, of course, with with Jenna quite a bit, that public opinion from the early 70s on is is supportive of mass incarceration and and he's going to argue that this uh, that that this public opinion is driven at least in, to some some degree uh, by media coverage the point he's making is that the portrayal we see of crime in particular on local news but the portrayal we see of crime is not consistent with actual crime rates right and that uh, th- this tends to lead many Americans to believe that the world is a lot more dangerous place than it really is. Mm-hmm. Let's take as a lesson out of uh, Peter's book that these cha- that this public opinion is important 
to how people are treated in terms of their their connections with the uh, criminal justice system in the state. Yeah, I, I mean, I you know, I think we've set more than one table. Well, we've set a yeah, dining so, room. I, you know, I, <laughs> so we should move on. But but uh, but so yeah, let's it, go to, a let's lot go to, to talk about here. Let's go to Jenna and hear uh, hear what she has to Towns Peter has to say. This is Jenna Spinelli here today with Peter Enns. Peter, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Uh, so we are going to um, talk about the subject of mass incarceration today. And the title of your book asks the, the question or kind of begs the question of how the U.S. became the most punitive democracy in the world. And I know in the book you make the connection to um, public opinion. Why do so many people in the U.S. want other people to, to go to prison? <laughs> yeah, no, that's a... That's that's an important question. And I, I think there's um, what we need to keep in mind is that although in some ways public attitudes are punitive in this country, how that punitiveness shifts over time. And that's a key aspect of this book is plotting the public becoming more punitive through the late 60s, 70s, 80s and 90s. And that and why that happened really relates to news reporting of the crime rate. So there, there's a lot of factors all mixed in here. What do you think the, the media gets wrong or, or how does, does the media contribute to this public perception? There's two aspects of this. One is, you know, we often hear the if it bleeds, it leads uh, aspect. So violent crimes are overreported by news media and then crimes um, committed by racial minorities are overreported. Then something else happens. When the crime rate goes up, those biases in reporting hold, so we're getting more coverage. So you get this interaction between more crime, more coverage, but the same old, if it bleeds, it leads storyline. And that is a huge part of what then pushes the public towards this tough on crime stance. Is there a particular point in history when this cycle kind of got started? Yeah, so we, we really see this starting uh, in the mid-60s, and we see it going toward the, really to the mid-90s, so a, a long period. Mm-hmm. And um, what, what was it about that kind of mid-60s point that, that really was the, the catalyst? Yeah, it's it's uh, it's it's hard to it's hard to say. I mean, this is a period where we have uh, civil rights is a prominent issue. We have um, riots going on. But one thing that's really notable is the link that I, when I look at the data, so there's over 60 years of data in the book, the link between the crime rate, news coverage of crime, and public attitudes is consistent. So there's kind of the shift in the 60s, but that's not the whole story because it really continues through the 90s. Where do things stand now or how have things changed since the the 90s? That's a critical question because what's happened is the crime rate's been going down since the 90s, and not, not everybody realizes that. And what the data show is the public has gotten less punitive as the crime rate's gone down. And so we often still hear about crime rates and the public is punitive. That's true, but much less so. And so there's a lot of calls for criminal justice reform on the right and the left these days. And this fits with politicians responding to shifting public attitudes, which are, again, responding to shifting crime rates. All right. So at the, while 
there's you know maybe not as much enthusiasm for the idea of of mass incarceration. It's on on some level there's already kind of this machinery in place to 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 make it happen, right? Like the the changes that came in previous generations were still kind of living through that that same system. Is that right? Yeah, that's well put. Because the U.S. has the highest incarceration rate in the world. So to undo something of that magnitude, it's just we can't turn off a switch. And and many people wish we could. Uh, the cost to mass incarceration are immense, both on a financial level, but also to people's lives. And they're not, although those costs affect everyone, they affect some groups more than others, right? So racial minorities and those of lower socioeconomic background are much more likely to be caught up in the criminal justice system. So even though there's growing recognition among the public and even politicians that we need to make changes, it's hard to do so. But some really important, meaningful changes have been occurring. Like what? So one uh, one example is there's been a lot of talk recently about the cash bail system, how unfair that is, how strange it is that if you can't afford if you're uh, arrested and you can't afford uh, a certain amount of money that you're going to stay in uh, in prison or, or actually in jail until your trial, right? And so a lot of localities, some states are revisiting this. So that's a, a very important change. Uh, decriminalization of certain drug offenses is another important change. Some prisons have actually closed. So we do see evidence. Uh, and the overall incarceration rate has been going down. So not nearly... Uh, as uh, going down not nearly as much or as quickly as many people would like, but we can see these shifts occurring. All right. And so I, I know you, you talk also in the book about um, people who, who are in, in prison and, and who come out of, of the system. Um, how does that impact their attitudes toward government, toward you know, democracy in, in general? Yeah, well, you can... First, uh, think about how, you know, day to day we experience politics and what's our most likely connection to politics. So is that, uh, you know, is that hitting a pothole and why hasn't this road been fixed? Uh, Is that going to the DMV? And sometimes it's like, wow, that was a really quick experience or that line was really frustrating. Well, if you've been uh, in prison, you know, a lot of your experience with government has involved police and the criminal justice system. And so that tends to have a negative effect on political participation. There's a second component where voting uh, is limited. And there are some states where if you've been convicted of a felony, you served your time and you've been released, now you're off parole. Totally everything's done. You still cannot vote. So Florida is an example. And so Florida is often pivotal in presidential elections. And those uh, there are hundreds of thousands of people who do not have the right to vote because years and years and years ago, they were convicted of a, of a felony. So that has a permanent effect on politics. We talked uh, recently with your colleague, Frank Baumgartner at, at UNC, um, who just has a, a new book out all about um, citizens and and traffic stops and that kind of interaction with police. And in that book, Frank talks a lot about um, this notion of an empathy gap or, you know, there's there are certain communities of, of color that are, are great, have a are more greatly impacted by these these traffic stops and searches and things. And um, 
it kind of has been a, a problem for a while because you know middle class white people, the people who tend to have more political power, don't realize what's happening. Is is there a, a parallel to be drawn there? Do you think between mass incarceration, where the the people who are in that kind of political power role might not be be aware of or be you know cognizant of what's happening in in the the prison system and those those populations? Absolutely. I think these ideas are definitely interlinked. And I think one one way to think about it is when somebody's um, incarcerated, if they've been convicted, if they were in fact guilty, and sometimes innocent people are are convicted and in prison, but if they were in fact guilty, they're being evaluated and judged probably based on the worst thing they ever did. And so you could kind of reflect. And if we all thought of the worst thing we ever did, and if that was how we were publicly evaluated over and over and over again, that's a much different scenario where um, typically if you're on a job interview, you're trying to put your best foot forward and you prepare as much as you can and you're being evaluated hopefully on your best accomplishments and the, the most positive things you've ever done. And so, yeah, I think this notion of an empathy gap is, is really important. Tell us about your your work with with the Cornell Prison Education Program. Sure. Uh, I've been involved with that program in a couple ways. Uh, Most recently, I was teaching uh, a couple summers ago a a course in Auburn Correctional Facility. So it's a maximum security prison. And so what Cornell's Prison Education Program does is it teaches college-level courses in prisons in the central New York area, so uh, around Cornell University. And it's Cornell faculty and PhD students who are teaching the courses. And that, that was a, a phenomenal experience. So I, the course I taught was what in the government department at Cornell we call a senior seminar. And so I taught the course that I had taught on Cornell's campus to senior government majors to a group of about 15 uh, inmates incarcerated um, in a maximum security prison. And it, it was phenomenal. I taught the course the exact same way. They had the same assignments. They did in, incredibly well. And it was, a, it was a phenomenal experience for, for me and hopefully for the students. Yeah. So did you find um, differences in the, the ways that they, they approached the, the subjects you were, you were discussing in class? Sure. I think uh, life experiences and current conditions always affect how we uh, uh, approach uh, the, the material we're engaging with. I would say there was um, a certain level of maturity. Some of that was a function of age of, of the students um, in, the, in the prison education program. Some of it was just the engagement with the material. And I think there's this misconception when we talk about college education and prisons of sometimes the thought is, oh, well, what else are you going to do than read? Well, the, a lot of pro- most of the students in the class are working full time in, in the prison um, and they're still engaging in, in their life. So a lot of them are doing like students, uh, your traditional college students, having to stay up late to finish the work. And it's not because they're wasting time. It's not because, um, you know, they're being inefficient. It's because their day is already completely filled. And if they want to get the reading done, they've got to work the time in and but the engagement with the material, the preparation for class, the willingness to uh, respond to input I provided was absolutely impressive. And, and oh, by the way, they don't have internet access, right? <laughs> no, no internet access. Most of so here's an important difference. Most of what was turned into me was handwritten. 
Um, so no access to writing on computers. So think about all the revisions we take for granted when we're when we're using a computer. And yeah, maximum security prison, no internet, uh, not using a computer for your assignments, limited you know resources. They could do uh, interlibrary loan, but that's you know every every book has to be pre-approved. Uh, so yeah, huge challenges. Uh, but the students uh, succeeded even with those challenges. So how do our kind of the, the country's attitude toward toward prisons and, and incarceration fit in with the attitudes about some some of the other kind of social fabric, if you will, of, of our country? Sure. So uh, uh, there's a lot of things that come to mind with, with that. And one is what happens when uh, somebody leaves prison and tries to re-enter society. And so I mentioned we have the highest incarceration rate in the world. Most of those currently incarcerated will leave prison. And so what happens? Almost everybody, uh, regardless of your political view, wants successful re-entry. We want individuals to come back to society, to become employed, to become contributors to society. So there's this common goal, yet this idea of a disciplinary state or a punitive state um, the parole board and corrections oversees this. And so if we think uh, about the conditions imposed on those who reenter society, so many, uh, we often talk about high recidivism rates. A lot of this is just parole revocations for technical violations. So if somebody um, has been addicted to drugs, uh, almost by definition, unfortunately, there'll be relapses with an addiction. Well, that relapse to addiction implies drug use, which is a technical violation of parole, which can get you back in prison. And so we could support this in a social way. So counseling, treatment, uh, job opportunities. Many, many people, um, and some I know who have left prison, their first night is in a homeless shelter because there's no support there. And so instead of viewing this as a criminal justice correction side, this could be a social support, social welfare view. And I think I mentioned that the level of the public's punitiveness has been declining. This to me is a real important question. Is public opinion shifting to where it will support uh, reentry based on best practices and the most supportive policies we can do? Or will there still be support for even though um, you committed a crime, so you're never going to have the same opportunities. And I think it's absolutely critical that we make this shift. Right. The, the other thing we've seen uh, is kind of the, the rise of, of privately run prisons. So, the, so prisons are no longer directly a, a function of, of, of the state or of, of government. How does that play into all of this? There's a couple, a couple thoughts that come to mind. One is private prisons still... Um, are a small minority of the overall prison population. So I think we need to keep in mind in terms of scope, that's not uh, that much of the prison population. We need to be attentive to the incentives, right? An institution trying to make profit has a different set of incentives than an institution that's, that's government run. We still, I think we also need to, sometimes I think the private and, and non-private prisons are viewed as uh, distinct opposite sides of something. And I think we probably need to think of them more uh, on a continuum. And so there's some real concerns with the incentives of um, non-private prisons. There are 
private aspects in state-run prisons. And so there's another area that's been talked a lot about in the media is just how much it costs to use a phone in most prisons. It's exorbitant. And so the, uh, getting items that you need for your basic health and well-being in prison from uh, the commissary. And that is there's private monetary incentives there. And so I think thinking of these as a continuum and not totally distinct is important. The other thing I think private facilities, private prisons brings in is immigration detention. And so sometimes, you know, if we think about the criminal justice system, often it's important to think about immigration and especially the current view of immigrants. There's a lot of ways to view immigration. One is uh, the U.S. as a uh, a country that welcomes immigrants. Another is immigration as supporting the economy. But there's a punitive side, too. And that punitive side has gotten much more a stronger voice from the current federal government. And so although I would say there's no intrinsic reason why immigration has to be thought of within the criminal justice system. The way our policies currently are, it is being thought of that way at many levels, and we need to keep that in mind. So we've, we've been talking a little bit about some of the, the reforms that, that have happened in the, the past couple of years, and I think Jared Kushner is, is maybe leading something now in, in, in the White House. We're starting to hear more about what's happening in prisons and, and, and how to reform them. Um, where do you, you see that going, and do you think it's, it's maybe enough to kind of reverse this trend that we've seen going back to the you know, 1960s? Yeah, I think because of the importance of public opinion in this story. I think that's why we've seen efforts on the right and the left. And so where most of the action is happening now is at the state level. And so essentially with Donald Trump uh, and Jeff Sessions, they are not in line with shifting public opinion. And so there are still attempts at bipartisan reform in the U.S. Congress. Those have somewhat stalled, and that's partly also because of political polarization in Congress. So states are really where we're seeing this play out in in important ways and in localities. A great example is conversations about closing Rikers Island. So Rikers Island is quintessential uh, New York City prison. Uh, If you watch any old Law & Order episodes, they're going to Rikers to interview some suspect. And now the the debate is how quickly will it be closed? And so in terms of, in my view, it should be closed quickly. But it's kind of stunning to think about this quintessential uh, Rikers Island that's been almost in a sense had been glorified in pop culture through television shows. The debate is how quickly can this be closed? And I think that's just a great illustration of the shifts in discourse around this issue. Uh, I think you touched on this a little bit, but um, an idealist might say that the U.S. um, criminal and penal system is designed for rehabilitation, where a cynic might say it's designed for punishment. And I'm just curious where the reality lies and how far apart those two sort of extremes are. I think the balance is varied over time, without a doubt, and I think we're shifting a little bit away from the punitive side, but it is the balance is definitely on the punitive side and the punishment side, and that is illustrated in aspects of the length of our sentences and how that compares to other countries. That's illustrated in terms of uh, systematic, systematic features like solitary confinement, that... Um, 
uh, just how families can communicate and visit. Uh, there's over two million kids who have a parent incarcerated in this country. And oftentimes, um, individuals are sentenced far away from their family. So just visiting um, a family member. So we definitely are on the punishment side of that, that continuum, in my opinion. Have we ever been on the rehabilitation side? There have been efforts, um, but I would say in this country, not in, not in a way that I think is designed to maximize rehabilitation. And if we look at other countries, uh, so Denmark often comes up as an example where uh, even for the most severe crimes, when you're imprisoned, it's much more like living in uh, a secure apartment. Your family can even live with you and interact with you, and you're, you're working a job. And so really preparing someone to be released. And if you, the, the, the notion here where you're in prison, um, maybe you don't even know for how long because it's subject to a parole board, and you're not you don't have access to skills. You don't have access to uh, a lot of education. In the, it used to be there were uh, the federal uh, education uh, grants could be used toward college education in prison. That's been revoked. Under Obama, there was some experimenting with bringing that back in on a limited scale. So there's been periods in the U.S. history where there was education in prison was more available. There's been periods when there's been more experimentation. There's also been periods that were worse. So I mentioned I taught in Auburn Correctional Facility. When Auburn was started, every inmate had to maintain absolute silence. They could not communicate. They could not say anything. They could not even gesture. Uh, and this led to massive psychological breakdown, suicides. That was viewed as part of the rehabilitation process. I would view that as an uh, extreme form of punishment. Wow. But it, this was at its founding. This is not recently. So that's an important detail. Yeah. So what, what was the process to get away from that policy? Do you know? Um, so the at one point, um, and, and I don't know exactly where in the historical context uh, this fit, but one of the big changes early on was the Auburn warden. Uh, and Auburn was one of the first prisons um, in the U.S. and the Tocqueville actually visited Auburn prison when he came to the U.S. So, so um, going full circle there. But the warden uh, came in as a prisoner and and spent time in as a prisoner and nobody knew it. And so when he saw that, that introduced some of the reforms in that era. Hmm. Wonder if, if we'd ever see that happen today, you know, member of Congress or any any kind of government official taking that living on that, you're trying to live that experience. I think it would certainly help close that empathy gap yeah, if it happened. For sure. All right. We are going to uh, bring things to a close here with our uh, Mood of the Nation poll questions, thinking specifically about um, American politics. Uh, what makes you angry? I think I'm especially angry or frustrated at demeaning political discourse that I hear. And then uh, what makes you proud? I'm proud of what I see as increased interest in politics, and hopefully that translates into increased turnout in elections. What makes you worry? I'm worried about lack of sufficient election security and potential election interference. And then finally, what gives you hope? Um, 
what gives me hope? Uh, the thinking about positive elements of U.S. history. There's a lot of negative ones, but there are also aspects to be proud of from. And so thinking about certain positive elements of U.S. history gives me hope for um, positive, uh, positive future. Is there any specific positive element you'd, you'd point toward? Yeah, sure. I think although there are still massive challenges, the, the civil rights movement is uh, a, a great illustration of, of collective efforts for meaningful change. And that doesn't mean we're where we need to be. But I think we have examples like that of uh, individuals coming together to take action to uh, turn this country to make it a better place. And that, that gives me hope. So very, very well put. Thank you for that, Peter. And thank you for joining us today. Thank you. This is a lot of fun. We're back. And as some of you may have guessed, uh, while Jenna asked many of those questions, there was a voice from the peanut gallery that belonged to uh, belongs to our uh, sound engineer, Andy Grant. So, Andy, thank you for that question. Yeah, it's it's a it's a um, it's an important issue for us for a lot of reasons, um, and it and it really does implicate some really serious questions about how you should run a democracy. You know, a democracy is designed to respond to public opinion, right? And what you're hearing here is the idea that politicians aren't driving this; they're not. Um, making this up out of whole cloth. They're responding to what they see as public opinion correctly, and they're um, they're successful as politicians by doing so. Right. And we're seeing we're seeing shifts in this as, uh, you know, the, you see signs of sort of bipartisan agreement within Congress uh, that there are problems with the criminal justice system, that it does treat African-Americans unfairly, that you know, uh, very punitive drug laws were putting people in prison for too too long. And and also there's this there is an uh, an element in American society, a dimension of American society that really does understand um, the role of prison and the role of the, you know, the um, mass incarceration system to be punishment. Right. To be punitive. It's supposed to be bad. It's supposed to be unpleasant. And and there are supposed to be long term consequences. And that value, that understanding um, it seems to me in frequently in, in, in American social policy, the history of American social policy, that uh, orientation overrides um, realities with respect to outcomes, with respect to how what kind of bang for the buck you're getting. Yeah, I think I think there are multiple costs here, Chris, that we're talking about. So there's the there's the excessive cost of keeping people in prison for often for nonviolent crimes. Uh, disproportionately punishing minorities in the process of doing this and keeping them there for a very long time. Mm -hmm. This is very expensive. And then we're also then throwing people back out into uh, society without necessarily the tools to survive, but also without even the right to become full citizens again. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I'm thinking particularly about all the state laws that uh, prevent felons from having the vote. Right. I don't I don't really understand the reasoning of why felons don't have the vote. They've served their time. Right. Uh, they're, they're not voting while they're in prison. Mm-hmm. Uh, wh- why can't they earn their way back into into full citizenship? Well, the, you know, again, 
this is punitive, right? You have given up your right to vote because you did this. You have given up your standing as a full citizen in this republic because you did this. That's the argument. Well, I, I guess, yeah, I understand that. I think public opinion is shifting on this too. Uh-huh. And, and, and one, one place we're going to see it is that you know, nobody leads in the uh, disenfranchisement of, of felons the way that Florida does. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, they have a arbitrary and sort of draconian process by which people can... They uh, admit as much. Yeah, right? <laughs> by which people can get back. But, you know, on the ballot this November will be a a, a, a referendum or initiative. I don't mm-hmm. know exactly how it, how it developed on uh, restoring voting rights for felons. The question is, what's best for our democracy uh, with respect to these people um, rejoining full status as a citizen? And, and so I feel like this, um, you know, this is, this is an indictment of our democracy, um, A, because it's just stupid. It's a bad, it's, a, it's an inefficient uh, spending of, of, of public money. But B, because it just undermines the idea or the goal that, um, that all of us have an equal status standing in this in this democracy. Right. And I, and I don't uh, picking up on what you're talking about. I don't see where it helps. Whereas uh, Peter was talking about that you're freeing people from the criminal justice system to then put them into aspects of the welfare right, state. Right. Uh, the, the, the goal should be to make sure they have the tools to, to not have to go on to right. the welfare state, where, of course, they then face a whole new set of sort of paternalistic uh, controls mm-hmm, over, over mm-hmm. their lives. Well, and just and very, very unlikely prospects, right? I mean, I actually, a million years ago, uh, was a counselor at a halfway house for men getting out of state prison. And, you know, part of the reason that was there was to ease this transition. But the fact is that um, for many people, the the prospects or, or the, the opportunities for re-engagement in society are so minimal that the simplest thing for them to do is just to become a criminal again. Yeah. So if I understand Peter's argument, in order to really make some progress here, the media needs to start covering some of these things differently. Or and just accurately, I'm not, right? Yeah, I'm That's not, all not fully optimistic about that. I'm not but, either. Yeah. I'm not either. But, I, but, it, but, but public it, opinion can change independently of the media. Right. So. And it does. And that that is where I find something hopeful is that, um, you know, this is about the fact that politics responds to public opinion and public opinion doesn't turn on a dime, but it does turn. It does respond to the reality. Well, and it can respond to leadership. And we're not necessarily seeing any kind of leadership on that issue, but it's not inconceivable that that will emerge on on both on either side. Right. Of the aisle you, I think that, I think, you know, this is not going right to turn, tur- kind of turn on a dime, yeah. but we are moving in a more rational and more equitable direction. Yep. Well, a lot to think about, a lot to talk about from uh, from Peter's yeah, book. Yeah, it's a really good book. Yeah. It, and it's and it's um, clear and um, it's really an important topic, not just for n- geeks like us, but for, for anybody who cares about our country. Yeah. So uh, from uh, Penn State University, uh, this has been uh, Democracy Works. I'm Michael Berkman. And I'm Chris Beam. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.